You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your murder mystery world tour. And Herds. Mm, Flex. Yep. Who shot Mr. Burns? Uh, you may have to, you may have to do it. <laughs> Goodness me. We are discussing Simpsons Season 7, Episode 1, the conclusion to Who Shot Mr. Burns. And after our editors have definitely bleeped out the spoiler that Herds blurted out carelessly before warning. It's too I should late. let you know that this is an all-spoilers episode. I'm glad that you've decided that the first three seconds of this episode, where we're covering a cartoon that came out literally 30 years ago, that's that's a spoiler. I mean, listen, that's a spoiler we need to be worried Herds, about now. Comedy show. Herds, I'm not personally worried about this spoiler, but we have standards on this show. I that don't. includes not, for, not, not accidentally spoiling Murder on the Orient Express in an episode two years after we covered the book. I, look, Murder on the Orient Express. Not just to pick an example out of thin air. <laughs> just to pick some random example. Maybe we should give Chrissy Herdew, but the but Oakley Weinstein, the, the rise of this particular set of Simpsons episodes, look, they know what they're getting into. They know that you should know by now who shot Mr. Burns. And it was definitely Smithers as the first third of this episode would, would have you believe. I mean, I thought the, the structure of this episode was actually sort of interesting in the way that like at once it felt like they were starting the episode trying to draw out the actual unveiling for as long as possible by like immediately debunking their own thing, but then sort of continuing to roll with it after they unveiled the first sort of visual clue that was a key part of the last episode. I quite like it. It's got the three act structure because there are two ad breaks you got to put in the middle somewhere. And the first act is is debunking Smithers for, for a little bit, making it look like the whole episode before was a dream, which is very silly. It's a very silly parody. But then the middle third is... Every other suspect in the room, except for Homer, who we kind of chase to the finale of the episode and where we unveil what's actually going on. Although the episode does make sure to like layer in additional clues. For example, when we are thinking about how would Homer's fingerprints have gotten on this gun that we need to figure out how his hands got on the gun. And they show like a flashback about how that might have happened and the course of showing how might Homer's fingerprints have gotten on this gun that shot Mr. Burns. They also show him finding a lollipop on the floor of the car, which is arguably the more important of those two clues. So yeah, I, I really like the way they structure the episode. I think one of the, the really interesting things for me in like watching this solution to the episode was that the only thing that I really messed up in my solution last week was that I had forgotten I was watching a comedy show. Uh I got so caught up in solving the murder mystery that the idea that we were taking candy from a baby didn't even, like, cross my mind as a practical, actual solution to the story. About a third of the way into the episode, he says, maybe we should try taking candy from a baby because he's, he's running out of evil things to do. What happens to Smithers at the end of that episode, he's fired by Mr. Burns, so he's no longer there to stop him from trying to take candy from a baby to wallow in his own crapulence, as he says. I think considering the visual clues that we get, considering the very brief reveal in the first episode we have of Maggie's lollipop, mm. and then the way they sort well, of drag that through, as you were mentioning, into this episode, I kind of I liked the pacing of how that clue was doled out. I mean, there's there's lots of clues like that, though, you see. like I mean, we, we talked about a lot of them last week on the episode. Most of them are to do with the names of characters, which are 90% red herrings, 
but same with, but also the the guns. Yes, I did feel sort of gratified at the showrunners <laughs> pointing out that their own clue on that front was pretty silly. It is very silly. Where he, he shows the W and S and he's like, oh no, that would be ridiculous. I wouldn't have done that. With my last ounce of strength, I sucked out my, my gold fillings and swallowed them. If they didn't make such a dramatic show of him falling onto the sundial, which is like a centerpiece of the story, uh, it wouldn't have been something we'd really think about. But it does tie into one of the more subtle clues in the episode, which is all of the clocks being set to either 3 or 9 p.m. You should try to think about what would happen if you had a clock upside down. So there, there is some effort being put into the clues trying to teach you how to think about them. That's kind of fun to me. I, I like that even getting all of the clues sort of lined up, there still are some mental hurdles to cross if you're thinking about it all tough and serious. Shall we talk about this episode as like a, I guess as a piece of entertainment, because I really enjoy this episode. It is very much focused on like revealing the mystery though. There are some, I would say, egregious parodies. Mm -hmm. I think the, the parody of The Fugitive is a really strange one when Homer, like he's been taken prisoner by the cops. He's been, he's been taken prisoner. And he does like mm -hmm. a tumble out the back of the the. The, the car that's like rammed by Jasper. It's this whole thing. But it's this really indulgent reference to The Fugitive. And the dream sequence is a reference to some other show that I don't care about. But like there's lots of these weird <laughs> movie parodies going on. Um, which well, is, yeah, which I mean, is the, fun. The, my, my favorite one is definitely Sideshow Mel's little detective <laughs> moment. Yes. Uh, this is my side, my, my associate, Kostolsky or whatever. Like it's like introducing... Krusty is his sidekick when normally he's the side the side show, you might say. And especially like the way that Krusty then comes in and says that he <laughs> stole the joke from Pardon My Zinger to like yes. fluff up the alibi. That was that was a really great way to make that clue seem more important than it actually kind of was. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, it's also like it's a joke. It's it's, you know, making that clue more apparent. And it's obviously a good segue for those characters because. You wouldn't really expect Sideshow Mel to be the one solving it. You expect, like, Lisa to be the one solving it, which she, she does, mind you. I think one of the interesting things about it as just, like, a piece of entertainment is the way that the episode is sort of, like, structured in a very stilted manner around sort of undoing a bunch of the stuff that happened in the previous episode. I, I, I don't know what my reaction was supposed to be about it, but the whole, like, Ricketts joke because none of them oh, have yeah. gotten sunlight and then they all go up and rip down Mr. Burns's dish and drop it onto the next town over. <laughs> drop it on Shelbyville. <laughs> it's very good. One of those jokes that I feel like, having not watched much Simpsons, strikes me as quintessentially Simpsons. Mm-hmm but also was like part of a sequence of things where because the show has to continue going into the seventh season, they couldn't leave a whole bunch of the consequences of the episode just kind of lying around. And it was just kind of all over the place. One of the consequences that the writers are thinking about, again, is not just like physical consequences of like, what do we do about this giant sundial? Let's just rip it down. That seems like a fine way to do Like it barely matters, right? But another thing is, because we've spent all this time through not just in the show, but also in a lot of the promotional materials, like setting up the characters as like any any of these characters could be a cold-blooded murderer. Now the show has to do a bit of work to say, actually, no, these characters that we've been setting up as the primary suspects are mainly thinking about Skinner, who inadvertently dresses himself in, in drag, and Moe, who gets, in my opinion, one of the best jokes where he is hooked up to a lie detector and he tries to pretend that he's got a date. I love that joke. And, but like all of these 
these bits are also to kind of say, well, actually, these characters aren't as dangerous. It's it's this problem that I don't think I've discussed on this show, but I know my friends will probably be sick of me saying, is that any time you sort of make a threat so large that you have to then somehow try and top it, you just kind of kill your own progress. And this definitely goes in on that. We're like, what, what's Mr. Burns going to do next? Like nuke the town? Like- yeah. I mean, he, he definitely, let me be clear. It's not that he never does bad things again. Like there's literally an episode where he constructs a, a device that will scrape the sea clean of all fish. Having him just go full evil from the start is not really something they can do convincingly anymore. I like the way that even though I can divide this episode up into three sections, there's a good rolling forward of the jokes and the characters get involved and the through line of Lisa solving the mystery because usually it's Lisa and Bart solving mysteries like this, but but Lisa like gets into Chief Wiggum's dream. That was very she funny. She tells him to, to look at the suit, which leads to the infamous DNA clue, which- We'll talk about that in the last section. We will. We definitely will. But it's kind of interesting that she's she's actually not on screen for very long. Most of the characters in Springfield are not competent enough to- to, to do it which in some ways is like why the simpsons is perfect for a murder mystery story right because <laughs> sure. in in so many murder mysteries there's sort of this weird thing that happens where you have to paint enough of the characters as too incompetent to be able to do anything because otherwise there's not really much of a justification for the detective to be there but in the simpsons because of just the history of the cast and the show it's sort of like pre-established and i i think that's kind of interesting in a weird way we probably shouldn't get into a full discussion on like the way that they constructed those characters but it is interesting how every character kind of has a stereotype or a niche that they're cornering but that they can also kind of fit whatever role that the the writers want them to that's why there are so many angry mob scenes which what we get one of them in this episode it's a tried and true simpsons tradition that the town will just turn into an angry mob and try to lynch the Simpsons. Speaking of angry mobs, we should uh, move on to the next section before the angry mob of our listeners comes hunting us down. Take for us down. Talking too much. That's true. We're going to get to the mystery. And exactly. Also- <laughs> this is Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour. We are talking The Simpsons. Who shot Mr. Burns? Part two, the first Part episode dose. of season seven. You're on your murder mystery world tour. This is 2SEO on 7.3. Stick around. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here on your murder mystery world tour. As we kick back off this year, it seems that writers all around Australia have conspired to release their books exactly before our summer break ended. And one of that multitude is Abby Corson, previously a luxury travel and lifestyle writer. She's originally from the UK, now lives in Melbourne. Her latest book, The Concierge, is her debut in the world of crime fiction. Abby, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Welcome to Death of the Reader. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So. I suppose the first thing I should get out before we kind of dive deeper into the weeds here is that I, as someone whose previous part-time gigging was being a supplier at weddings, really felt seen in this book. Can we just, can we just get into that? (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad I wrote it. I wrote it for you. I wrote it exactly for people like you. (laughs) (laughs) It's so interesting having- I'm so glad. Yeah, it's so interesting having Hector as the main character of this book, because when we look at crime fiction, historically, one of the sort of 
occasionally spoken but often unspoken rules is that it can't be the house help who ever actually did anything of relevance in a murder mystery novel. But in this book, they're our main characters, they're our perspective. So it really confuses things. Why was that the sort of angle you chose to go with with the concierge? This area of crime fiction, it's a murder mystery in a hotel. It's been touched many times before. This was a place I wanted to write from. As a travel writer, I wanted to set the book in a hotel. But it had to be different, of course. I didn't want people to read it and think, oh, I've read something like this before. So this perspective is different. The characters are different. And it's really seeing that other side, like the staff are the the main characters. I, I thought it was so interesting, especially the way when we first going through the, the Cavern ca- Green. Yeah, the Cavern Green Hotel. When we're going through its initial description, this big T-shaped building, these huge, like the the lavender uh, plates restaurant out the front there. It was sort of interesting you trying to grasp with that massive ostentatious styling of the hotel, but put it into what otherwise felt like a pretty grounded novel. Was that sort of like juxtaposition, something that really spoke to you in writing this book? Absolutely. So I think just with my background as a travel writer, I just love hotels. I love them. I love the experience that they create for a guest. So it was always going to be set in a really lavish five-star hotel. But then because I'm from the north of England, some of the most interesting characters that I've ever met in my life are northern English working class people they have so much personality and they that was just the character that I had to place within there and I just thought this is this is great he's going to be in there he's working class he goes home at the end of the day and has this really simple life but then he goes to work and it's you know over the top and it's fancy and he's dealing with people who you know have this different level of standards and yeah, no, I, I really love that. And I think that Hector is such a great lens into this story. He has OCD. We go through his family history of how that came about with abuse from his father and him still sort of learning through his work at the hotel to have to care for the guy that spent all of his use abusing him and that very real experience that we often kind of see put into crime fiction. Where did Hector come about as a character for you? Because, you know, he's a 73-year-old guy and last time I checked, you're not. What was what was was that selection like? (laughs) What gave me away? (laughs) (laughs) For me, so it all started, the book came about from this idea of just thinking about who I would want to write about. As I said before, I just love people from the north of England. And I love the way they really talk about the most mundane things in life. So that was really the starting point of, okay, how do I create a character where you get to see these kind of more mundane side to his life, but it not be a boring book about, you know, just what tea he's drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought, oh, maybe that's, that's right. book. that's a transcription. Um, but what kind of character is going to need to transcribe their thoughts to make a book instead of just writing a book? Because, and I mean, it, it's yeah. such a genius move from you too, because as someone who reads a lot of crime fiction, as soon as we're dealing with transcription, as soon as we're dealing with someone who is having someone else write their story and is communicating with the person who's writing their story, it opens up so many different avenues for unreliable narration. We sort of have two narrators through Helen and Hector, even if Helen is narrating through just the way that she's writing. And I thought that was so clever for sort of the way that we see hotel staff like through the lens of the hotel that they work Helen almost sort of embodies that to me yeah absolutely it was and I love the relationship between them and it was really important for me and we really hammed it up during the editing process to have these sort of 
side pieces of Hector talking to Helen as well, just to really make you question as the reader, because you're reading this transcription, but Helen's got control of it and Hector is giving her instructions. You're questioning, is she following the instructions? Why are we having to read him telling her to do this? Why is that in there? But it's, you know, it's just to create this really raw version. So you as the reader just you're just completely absorbed in this world of you're hearing absolutely everything that's going on and you really don't have a choice but to trust it. Yeah, well, I think one of the other interesting things is that because the Cavern Green, you know, is like the only source of the internet in its particular vicinity, it means that basically the entire hotel staff are the social network for each other. Like, they were like the perfect working team who'd now been thrown in this spanner in the works. And I love that idea that, you know, typically when we come into that family-style murder mystery, it's the the years and years of resentment and not being able to become that perfectly oiled machine that creates so much of the tension. And I love that it was instead unraveling to that state that created a whole bunch of the tension, particularly between Hector, Fiona, and Potts of, of the staff team. I thought that was excellent. Yeah, and because, you know, for Hector, this work persona is so important to him. Mm. And he is someone that prides himself on how reliable he is. And he really loves seeing that in other people. And I think that as he saw that sort of collapse around him, it was really hard for him because he's thinking, hey, you can rely on me. Why can't I rely on you? Yeah, especially especially the scene where just after he's found the body, he goes down to the restaurant, the wedding tea party is happening. You know, the, the team, before everything is unraveled, is trying to support him. They're doing their best. Dave is throwing a spanner into the works. But then there's almost this moment where reality breaks, to my mind, where uh, American Dave says, there's been a murder. Nobody be alarmed and everyone just goes back to tea and it's like, okay, we've crossed over into <laughs> fantasy land at this point. But I also had this nugget like, does that actually happen in the north of England? Like, <laughs> I really truly believe that if that happened and people were in the middle of having an afternoon tea, champagne, a whiskey, mm-hmm. a cigar, whatever, you just think, okay, well, I've got half an ear on that. That's going on. But also... I want to finish my tea. Mm-hmm. I paid good money for this tea. And, you know, why can't I drink my champagne and eat my croissant or whatever whilst listening to all this murder hullabaloo that's going on? <laughs> I would. Would I, you not? Would you not just still sip your drink? The <laughs> thing is, is like, until I read that passage in the book, I would have been like, no, absolutely ridiculous. I'd be sitting there nervous. And, but the more I've thought about it, the more I'm like, goodness, I, I feel like a, a, a an incision has been made into my brain and a fact I never would have found otherwise has wormed its way out. <laughs> maybe, but maybe you would be up there with American Dave trying to solve what happened. I God, like I hope in, not. In the action a bit more. I'd be on the, I'd be at the backs just drinking my champagne and you'd be, you'd be up there saying, who did this? It's 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 such great fun, and I think there's there's so much quality in the ways that the very real world you've painted brings a level of whimsy out of the story so naturally, and it's just such a great read to start the year for me. So, Abby, thank you so much for joining us here on Death of the Reader. It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Abby Corson there, talking about her debut crime fiction novel, The Concierge. Thank you to Ultimo Press for putting us in touch with Abby and providing a copy of the book for us to read. We'll have links up on the podcast if you want to find out more. But for now, let's jump back over to Who Shot Mr. Burns? The 
You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we are talking The Simpsons, who shot Mr. Burns. It was Maggie. First episode of season <laughs> seven. No, it was Smingers. It was Smingers who did it. It was Mr. Snrub. I, I wish. That would have been the ultimate the ultimate twist. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've covered the broad strokes <laughs> of the mystery in the first part of the show, so if you missed that, you can always go catch it up on the podcast, 2SER.com or your podcast app of choice. But Herds, there are still so many clues, so many fun little details drag through this episode. What did, what did you want to throw down on? I wanted to start with the, the worst one, which I couldn't, couldn't really get over, so I figure I'll just get it off my chest here, which is that they extract the bullet from his body and it still has the cartridge on it. Yeah, that is very silly. It's bizarre because, like, this episode is infamous for being... Well, actually, that's not true. The, the, the episode before is infamous for being combed over with a, with a fine tooth to get all the animation errors out of it. And I guess this is just something they didn't care about. I, I was kind of wondering when it first happened, if they were going to like pay it off later in the episode, but no, it, it never, never gets brought up again. I think like, honestly, if I'm going to defend it and I am, it's just because like, if you think about what a bullet looks like, that's what it looks like. I don't mean to dwell on, you know, forensics too much when there is a DNA, much greater DNA. error you mentioned. Yeah. Shall we get into it then? Shall we talk about the worst clue, the actual worst clue? Because it doesn't solve anything. It just drives the plot forward. It's bizarre. It's a Trojan horse, really. Here is the thing that I believe they ran into. Yeah. When you hear me talking in our previous episode about how I solved this, so much of it was about murder mystery genre convention and the fact that anyone who actually threatened him couldn't be mm-hmm. the killer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how do you undo that when, as Lisa says at the start of the episode, everyone has a reason and basically everyone has opportunity? Everybody's got guns. They had to find some way to <laughs> narrow it down between their various ad breaks. <laughs> and it really seems like it was a thing for time to me, right? Well, it's, I mean, you're not wrong because as you may or may not be familiar, Simpsons is created to be 20 minutes long and that's, that's all the time you got. So you got to put a plot, you got to put jokes, you got to put character development, you got to make it an actually good episode. If we want to get Homer to be, you know, at the end of the episode in the denouement scene with a gun to Mr. Burns head, what is the quickest, most efficient way to get him there so that we can't interrupt all these other bits that we've got planned? And the easiest way was to have him have his hand on the gun through complete accident and for there to be Simpsons DNA inside Mr. Burns's suit, which is also <laughs> indicated to the police by a hot cream dream. It's coffee creamer. It's been like left out in the sun and it's like a drug infused dream. And that's what drives it towards the Simpsons DNA. But yeah, like, look, it's a comedy show, so they got to use some wacky explanation to get themselves there. But yeah, it's it's just a quick path to victory. All of the detail aside in this episode, oh. it is really just a two-episode build-up for the joke that this all happened over stealing candy from a baby. Like, yes. everything else that happens, no matter how horrendously evil <laughs> Mr. Burns was, mm. that's the bit. Mm. It's to ju- justify <laughs> a baby shooting an old man. Shall we, shall we talk about that scene? I have prepared a document. Oh, exciting. T- tell me more, Hertz. So here's the thing. My favorite sequence of both episodes, because it plays in both episodes, is the section where Mr. Burns is getting shot. Because in the first episode, it happens off screen. And the second episode, it happens. It's fully animated. In both sequences, we get to hear every line that Mr. Burns says. And every line is a clue. 
So when we see Mr. Burns walk off into the shadows to go and get shot by Maggie, we hear him say, oh, it's you, which indicates that he recognizes the assailant, so it's probably not Homer. He says, what are you so happy about? Which is strange because, like, why would someone be happy to see him when he's just blotted out the sun? He says, I think you'd better drop it. But, like, we know because we're we're clever viewers and we've spotted the gun in Burns' holster that that's probably the murder weapon. So, like, what is he telling them to drop if it's not a gun? And then we hear him struggling. So, and this to me is like the big smoking gun of the episode. We saw him in the previous episode flail against Principal Skinner. So he's not going to struggle with anyone stronger than a small child. And then he says, get your hands off, which is not off me, just off. We hear the gunshot and we see Marge who has come to the front of the courthouse. And again, one of my favorite clues, we see that she has come from behind the courthouse which is where she turns to as Mr. Burns comes from the same direction because they have also literally come from the same place, which is Marge's car. Yeah, it's all a little disorienting in the end of the previous episode, but when they like replay it out in this episode, it does actually kind of punch pretty nice. It is honestly a really impressive example of like structuring in a collection of clues across different like contexts that all sort of build on each other. Especially that thing you were saying about like understanding the motivations and like the the layout of his sentence there sort of requires you to pay attention in a like different way. Yeah, like when he says, get your hands off, it sounds like he's about to say off me. But he's like, let go of my let go of my candy, baby. I want that candy. It's really dumb. But it, it all makes sense. And you can see how the writers like put everything together very carefully, which I I, I think yeah. it's really cool. And th- there are a lot of good examples of that sort of thing where like they've put in context dependent clues doesn't feel like quite the right term for it, but I'm just going to go with it. <laughs> like when we go into the church for the confessional with Smithers and there's a sign outside that says the pastor carries $20 where like uh-huh. the police are clearly trying to attract criminals to come in and confess <laughs> their sins. Yeah, they're trying to attract criminals to catch them. Yeah. So I thought that was an excellent little clue that sort of gives a a little bit of bait for like, hang on a minute, that's a suspicious sign outside the church before it's revealed that it's a police sting. Yes, it's a joke. And then it's also foreshadowing to the plot, which is also a joke. As not my speed as The Simpsons is, I do still have like so much respect for like the various layers of what is going on here and the tight window in which they are achieving it all. I should probably let you know how many points you're getting. I'm not giving you full three points. You only got, you technically only got the who, even though that is the most important part. You didn't really like, I mean, you understood the gun that was used, but you didn't really understand the candy, which is the entire motivation for the shooting. So. Two sounds like a generous total. I won't protest it at all. I think all. two is good. Although technically, well, no, you did you did give me two solutions actually, because I asked for them deliberately. I did. Anyway, yeah, I'll give you two out of three points. I think you did a fine job of picking apart, you know, based on genre conventions, but missing the actual motivation for the shooting and what basically the scene that I just explained which in hindsight was like extremely silly of me but i do sort of love the way in which it is silly for me yeah i mean it's a it's a big joke right at the end of the day yeah like i enjoy that as much as i can sit here and complain that i don't quite gel with the simpsons style of humor that like me forgetting that it is trying to be humorous was the thing that undid me in the end. That's fun to me. I like that. You know what else was humorous? Just because I feel like this hasn't made it into any other part of our discussion. Is it Dr. Colossus? (laughs) That was what I was going to say. But yeah, Dr. Colossus is amazing. His joke about Mr. Burns 
doing regular villainous things rather than super villainy. What were you going to say? I was going to say Tito Puente, who is such a strange character. Of course. Being the like celebrity cameo character from real life. Oh, right. Um, Yes, of course. The musical number. He has a two minute long musical number. Which doesn't, it doesn't actually add anything to the plot. Or no, to the especially mystery. when we're like trying to get from scene to scene with such vicious pace. Yeah, it's it's a great song. And the initial plan was to have him like sing a song. But then, of course, they basically, uh, they, they got him on the on the project and found out, actually, he's not a singer, he's a drummer. So they had someone in his band do the singing for them. Well, Herds, I suppose next week on the show, you oh, yeah. have to uh, solving something? file your taxes. Oh, what does that mean? Oh, no. Well, so last year, Herds, we tried to dodge covering our murder mystery taxes by covering Sophie Hannah. Tried to have you do my taxes for me. And it was, yeah, it was, it, w- it was a very terse conversation with the uh, internal reading service. I see, I see. When they reached out and said, you know, you're going to have to file pretty close to the start of this year or mm-hmm. we're going to get in trouble. Yep, yep, yep. But kindly, they suggested to me that Agatha Christie ran a competition upon the release of her novel, The ABC Murders, which oh. famously only one person got wholly and entirely right. Well, you know what? It's going to be two. I'm going to... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that I'm going to be that second, but I will. I will do my absolute best. I will solve <laughs> as much of the ABC murders. Is it like there are however many letters in the alphabet? Twenty six murders. Is that what it is? You know, Herds. <laughs> it, it's you'll have to see from oh, uh, no. Captain Hastings' personal narrative oh, dear. how the structure of this story is going to work out. But I know nothing about this story, so I'm I'm terrified. I'm ready. Good. Good. We are going to be going from chapter one, the letter, to chapter 14, the third letter. Oh, good lord. Okay. (laughs) What do you mean, the third letter? Oh, I'm looking forward to this one. Here we go. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour here on 2SER 107.3. We will be back with Agatha Christie next week on the show. Time to file my taxes. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Listening to 2SER 107.3. Catch you around.